So as we have learned from the previous weeks of this series study of Ephesians, one of Paul's primary goals for this letter was to fight the systematic disunity of the time. We think about his words of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, as we think about the divides in the social, political, and and religious context of that era. But the disunity that Paul saw in the world extended much further past the physical and seen realm. And his words from this passage today reflect his desire for us to mend the disunity in the spiritual realm as well. Now, the people in Paul's time were probably very comfortable with talk about the, the spiritual and the unseen. Uh, they were, it was commonplace for them, and in fact, many of the pagan religions even dealt with the, the spiritual as well. But today, however, our most typical conversation about the unseen might be ghost hunting TV shows or flickering lights or even for some of us, maybe that one yoga instructor that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. While we don't always feel at home talking about the unseen, I would imagine that most of us have a memorable or haunting experience with the spiritual. Robert Louis Stevenson once said, you know the Caledonian railway station in Edinburgh? One cold, east windy morning, I met Satan there. How many of you have been to that particular Scottish train station? We have one over there. Even though most of us haven't been there, I would imagine that we all have some experience from our lives that allows us to relate to Stevenson's experience of evil. For me, I am reminded of one damp early August evening in San Francisco, California. It was the last night of our high school mission project, and we had spent the entire week engaging with the homeless population of San Francisco. While we were there, we, um, our, our activity for that night was to leave in our small groups and walk around the city and pour hot chocolate and offer cups of hot chocolate for people that we came across throughout our walk. As my team walked out of our residence and out onto Ellis Street, I immediately felt a strange energy in the air, a sort of oddly tangible, nervous excitement. The people we had been talking to all week were typically friendly, but for tonight, tonight for some reason, there was a little bit more hostility in the air. There were more short and combative and almost aggressive encounters in that one night than there had been all week. The longer we spent outside talking to people, the more discomfort and fear I started to feel. And so as the leader for my small group, I decided to bring us back early. And as we got closer and closer to our residence, our pace got quicker and quicker. When we got back, I looked around at the wide-eyed faces of the rest of our staff team and knew that I wasn't the only one that was feeling the tangible evil in the air that night. While it wasn't a full moon, as some of us jokingly guessed, it was the first night of the month. And for those battling and caught in the brutal and unrelenting cycles of addiction, the first night of every month serves as a sort of evil oasis in the desert of withdrawal as welfare checks are distributed and the streets become flush with money and the goods and services that are traded in that market. See, the first day of every month is in that context where the enemy uses the vices of cash and addiction to exploit 
the weaknesses in God's children. Now, I tell you this story not to scare you from doing mission work or to engage with the people with whom you come in contact in the street, but instead to offer you an example of the battle that's at hand. You see, the forces of evil were at work that night. They were tempting and conniving, actively seeking to break up any unity between God and his people. This is a battle that we rarely notice. It's a battle that we're really uncomfortable talking about. But it's a battle that's constantly affecting us. And therein lies the problem. You see, when we are oblivious to the battle, we start to slip and lose ground to the forces of evil around us. But when we start to recognize the battle, we can then begin to prepare ourselves for success. There's a constant back and forth between the good works that God is doing in this world and the forces of darkness seeking to end the light. C.S. Lewis, uh, the great author, summarized this idea well with this quote. He says, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. You see, when we are unaware of the conflict, we cannot prepare ourselves with God's power to be able to withstand the blows that we will take. And we will slowly but surely succumb to the temptation of the enemy. Now there is good news, however. There is good news, and the good news is just that, the good news. The gospel message, our God overflowing with love for his creation, sent his son to suffer and die to ensure the victory over the enemy. The same great power that was on display in the resurrection of the Messiah and his ascension to his holy seat on the right hand of God is available to us as protection. And so because of that, we must be mindful of the battle that's around us and prepare ourselves to be filled by that power so that we can then go and walk with confidence that the war over the enemy has already been won. Now, Christ's victory on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago does not, however, negate or lessen in any way our duty as Christ followers to stand firm against the forces of evil around us. In fact, to live into that type of mindset can be vitally dangerous. For example, take the, uh, the conclusion of the American Civil War. If we think back to our riveting high school American history classes, we remember the surrender of Confederate General Robert E. Lee to be the defined victory point of the war. Yet any good historian's timeline of the conclusion of that war will begin with Lee's surrender. You see, after the Confederate general gave himself over, there were still weeks, months of continued fighting. Until President Andrew Johnson, almost a year later, gave the final and official proclamation of unity across the states. After the victory had happened, skirmishes raged on. Lives were lost. There was still work to be done to bring about the full fruits of the victory. As he writes the letter to Ephesians, Paul understands our role in Christ's victory. He understands that there are still hearts to be won, there are still lives to be changed by the power of Christ until he returns. And so he offers us the words of today's passage to help us continue to do that kingdom work that we have set out for us. Today's text breaks down into three main actions that Paul urges us to take in the midst of the spiritual battle. 
versus be strong, there's stand firm and pray. Let's take a look at the first thought from Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. The first word of this text is finally. Finally indicates a conclusion. Finally precedes a summary. Finally is the word that I listened for my teachers to say so that I knew when to really start paying attention in class. Today, in this passage, Paul uses the word finally to alert the readers that this passage, this ten verses, is a culmination of all the thoughts of the book of Ephesians. The the greetings of grace and peace, the message of being made fully alive in Christ, the pervasive themes of unity and Christian community, even the model image of a family, all can be supported and enriched by these ten verses in Ephesians. And so part one, action one, is be strong or rather be made strong by the power of the Lord. Because if we're focusing on just being strong, the likelihood is that we're trying to do that on our own. We're bringing in our own power, supplying our own strength, and not looking anywhere else for support. But the problem is we cannot ignore the part of the verse that says, be strong in the Lord. It's the same power that created the universe, that conquered death, is there ready to support us and protect us if we would just open ourselves to it. See, providing just our own strength in the battle is futile. Our individual and human power is no match for the forces that are fighting against us. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it mentions that the enemy prowls like a lion waiting for someone to devour. A lion hunts for the feeble, exposing and capitalizing on her prey's weaknesses. Our spiritual enemy is clever and and scheming, personal and intelligent. The forces of evil know our weaknesses and even worse, know exactly how to exploit them to create the most destruction. Our enemy is so cunning, theologian Peter O'Brien remarks, that evil rarely looks evil until it has accomplished its goal. You see, we are so manipulated by the enemy that we hardly realize how much destruction we allow in our lives. Hence, our need to be made strong in the Lord. And Paul says to do so by putting on the full armor of God. Some translations describe this as the splendid armor. And you see, this full armor of God, this idea of the armor is not just a metaphor for godly living, but instead If we turn to Isaiah chapters 11 and 59, we see that this armor that Paul is describing is the exact same armor that God himself puts on to defend his people, the Israelites. God, the one with ultimate power, makes his own armor available to us. So when we start to humble ourselves and be filled with the power of God, we can put on the full and splendid armor of God so that we can plant our feet and stand firm without fear of the enemy's work. 
About a month ago, I was in Slidell, Louisiana. I was on a swamp tour just on the northern edge of Lake Pontchartrain. And the bayou that we were floating through is a part of a national wildlife refuge. And so as far as the eye could see, everything was natural. There were trees coming up out of the water, huge areas full of lily pads, herons flying overhead. Even a few alligators came up the boat looking for some food to eat. As we made our way around a bend right before our eyes, in, half in the water, half out of the water, lay a massive concrete pier. It, was, it resembled a double-decker version of one of the breakwaters out on Lake Michigan. The concrete monstrosity was completely out of place. It was the only man-made object for miles. As we were gazing at it confused, the tour guide took that time to start to explain to us the power of the storm surge from Hurricane Katrina. This huge concrete pier caught up in, in the power, the immense power of the winds and the washing waters was uprooted at nearly 100 tons and washed over three miles to where it lands and stands today. You see, every day we face hurricane force opposition in the battle versus the enemy. And Paul knew the importance of standing firm amidst these storms, and so soon after he urges us to do so, we get to his description of the armor of God, our solution to covering our weaknesses and standing firm. Under house arrest, Paul likely could devote a different level of focus to this letter than he could to some of the other letters that he wrote while traveling from one city to another. He could spend more time maybe on the details that allowed him to create a beautiful illustration of some of his thoughts. And we see an awesome example of that right here in verses 14 through 17. I like to imagine Paul sitting at a desk with his dried reed pen in hand, maybe looking out the window, searching for some inspiration as he reflects the virtues of God that we need to take to protect ourselves. As his gaze floats back into the room, his eyes land on the Roman soldier standing next to him, guarding, always looking and keeping watch. Instead of despair, Paul's mind starts to race excitedly as he gets a picture of not a Roman soldier, but a soldier for Christ, putting on all the most important pieces of armor for the battle at hand. First, the belt of truth holds everything together and allows the, it allows the soldier freedom of movement. With the base of truth, the Christian can then move freely through difficult situations, confident in the truth that's presented in Scripture. The breastplate of righteousness, often described as an interwoven piece of chainmail that completely covered the shoulders, chest, and torso. When we are completely covered with righteousness, we start to become imitators of our great God, just like Paul urges in Ephesians 5 verse 1. The shield of faith, and the shield that Paul's referencing here is a battle shield. It's huge and door-shaped, made out of strong wood, oftentimes coated with several layers of water-soaked leather. Just like a shield, faith in God allows the Christian to defend against and extinguish the flaming arrows of temptation that are fired our way. The helmet of salvation, protecting our minds from doubting God's salvific work, when we have God's grace-filled victory in the forefront of our minds, our thoughts and our actions 
will then begin to reflect that same grace into the people and relationships that we have around us. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, it's living, it's active, it's sharp and relevant. We can use the Scriptures on the offensive against evil or on the defensive to defend against the the advances of sin in our own lives. When we are rooting ourselves in the Word, we are offered direction, we're offered encouragement. We are preparing our minds for the kingdom work that we have set out for us. You see, as soldiers for Christ, this is our standard issue. These are the items that we've been given to prepare for the battle. It's God's own armor that he allows for us to wear so that we can stand firm in the battle to glorify his name. And so this week, as you're spending time in your quiet time and you're reading through this passage, I urge you to pray over it. I urge you to ask God, which one of these pieces of armor do you most often leave at home? If you were to begin to equip yourself with every piece of armor day in and day out, what would change in your life? What would your relationships begin to look like? Where might you find some unexpected growth in your faith? So go and take up each piece of armor daily, fully prepared for the hurricane of the enemy's schemes. So if we're recognizing the battle, if we're being made strong, we're standing firm, we're doing well, all those are of crucial importance, but none of them can be made fully possible without prayer. You see, if we're not praying to arm ourselves and align ourselves with the passions of God, or if we're not praying to Uh, see the evidence of God at work in our lives, none of that is going to come to be. And so the last three verses of this passage, Paul speaks on our need to engage in constant, intense, and unselfish prayer. Can we read aloud together the focus verse of verse 18? It says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. See, constant prayer can sometimes seem daunting and unattainable. I struggle with the practice myself, often because my thoughts are revolving around my own concerns and my own abilities, as opposed to the ways that the Lord is working through me and constantly at work around me. And so one of the ways that I try to teach myself this constant, this practice of constant prayer is to be praying for the things that I'm hearing and seeing throughout my daily routine. As I walk my dog, I try to lift my neighbors up as I walk by their homes. On my way to work, as I pass hospitals and schools, the students and teachers, patients and doctors are the subjects of my prayer. Try this type of constant prayer today. Try it even on the way home from work, praying aloud in your car with your family. Because the more comfortable we become with constant prayer, a constant communication with our Creator, we'll start to become closer and closer to the true vine, our source of life. In the same way, we need to strive to make our prayer intense. It needs to demand our focus and demand our our attention. Because a limp prayer... From the very back of our mind for a friend in need does not in any way put us in the posture of true dependence on God. In fact, that type of half-hearted prayer might be the scheming enemy 
exploiting a weakness to destroy our practice and theology of prayer. You see, the true danger of lukewarm prayer is that it can quickly become the norm for our prayer lives. It's easy, it's comfortable, and frankly, it allows us to check a box off of our spiritual to-do lists. When somebody or something is in need, when you have the urge to pray for somebody or a name comes across your mind, what is keeping you from stopping what you're doing and devoting your full energy to prayer? Finally, unselfish prayer builds unity of the believers. If we're following following Paul's military metaphors, how much weaker is one soldier by himself compared to a band of soldiers? The shield was an important piece of armor on its own, but when interlocked with a company of other shield-bearing soldiers, it became an impenetrable wall that helped to cover all the weaknesses of everybody in the company. Today, our prayers are we are so often the subjects of our own prayers. We, we pray for the Lord to intervene to make things in our lives a little bit easier, a little bit more successful. But this week I challenge you to be praying for others. Ask God to open your minds to the needs of those in your circle so that we can start to become others-minded. When we are others-minded or others-focused, we start to live into Paul's picture of how the true unity in the body of Christ will come to be. To close, I want to return to that August night in San Francisco that I was describing earlier. Throughout the week before that night, our team of students and staff had been in prayer for our experience in the city. We were praying that we would be open to the Holy Spirit moving through our hearts. We were praying um, that the Lord would use us and use the people that we came in contact with to do his work. Essentially, our foundation for the entire week was in prayer. And so that haunting night, as we were out pouring hot chocolate and talking with people, we spoke with a man named Keith. Keith was frantic. He was worried, preoccupied about something. And in my mind, I saw that as feeding into the eerie atmosphere of the night. As, free, as, uh, as Keith started to open up to us, he shared that his wife, who had been working through some mental instability, had just run away after receiving a terminal cancer diagnosis. And so for the last 24 hours, Keith had been on foot searching for her throughout the entire city of San Francisco. He was in utter despair. But that night, I watched the Lord at work through the students. They showered Keith with the love of Jesus Christ. They listened to him intently and offered him hope in a time that he was feeling an increasing lack of purpose. They circled around him together and prayed for him. In tears, Keith had to pull himself away from our group and continue the search for his wife. We were left with our hearts torn for him terrified for Keith and praying desperately that he would experience God's peace in that moment. The next morning, our small group was off debriefing the week on our own, and I received a call from one of the other staff leaders on the trip. She insisted that I gather my group around the phone because she had something important to tell us. So over speakerphone, she started to share that just then, a man had approached her group. He asked if they knew the group that was pouring hot chocolate the night before. 
he introduced himself to them as Keith. He said that he had found his wife, and not only that, but that the conversation that he had had with our group the night before had saved his life. He was feeling encouraged and at peace in a way that he never had before. You see, in a night that felt like evil was in and through everything, the Lord was at work. Through prayer and preparedness, our students took up their splendid issued armor and acted against the enemy's pressures of fear and discomfort. They opened themselves to act on the Lord's leadings, powered by the great resurrection power of our God. They did all this in a way that profoundly changed Keith's life and our own. So friends, finally, finally, with the foundation of prayer, let's allow ourselves to be filled with that power of God. Take up his splendid armor for our protection and stand firm with one another in the victory of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you, Lord, for your work and your victory over the enemy. Lord, we know that it was in that victory that our mission was set out for us to continue to do your work, to win hearts, touch lives, so that we can bring out true unity in the body of Christ for your glory. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place today that we can work together, pray for each other, open ourselves to your power, and take up your splendid armor, focusing on each piece that plays such a vital role in our protection against the enemy. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word. And we pray that it powers us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.